right, Jen Cooper, the Keeper, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 242, and with that number, we're going to give a shout out to Jessica McDonald, who recorded 242 shots in the first six seasons of NWSL. Only six players recorded more, and J-Mac, we're, we're definitely hoping that you are on the roster that is Dropping tomorrow. As I record this, it's May 1st. U.S. Women's National Team roster is supposed to drop May 2nd. Uh, so, of course, all that will be talked about on the next podcast. But for this podcast, two chats. First, with 2015 Women's World Cup champion Megan Klingenberg, a.k.a. the Night Kling, we talked about our mutual favorite topic other than soccer, and yeah, that would be Game of Thrones. My apologies to any listeners who aren't following the show. If you're not interested or you haven't seen the latest latest episode and don't want spoilers, skip ahead to the second chat of this episode. But keep in mind there is some chatter about Portland Thorns, actually reality Portland Thorns, not fantasy Portland Thorns, at the end of this segment with Megan Klingerbird. Then I spoke with Joe Ferreira, who's commissioner of United Women's Soccer, or UWS, That's the second-tier league beneath NWSL. He is also the founder of the New England Mutiny, a semi-pro women's team that's been around for now 20 years. So he had some some interesting stories to share. So two chats. If you don't want to hear Game of Thrones, skip ahead to the second chat, but hope you enjoy it all. Jen Cooper, the keeper, here with Megan Klingenberg from Portland Thorns, aka the Night Kling, which is why I have you on the call because because <laughs> there was a pretty big Game of Thrones episode this weekend, right? Yeah, I missed it though. No, I'm kidding. I totally watched <laughs> it right after our game. <laughs> Did you guys have a group? Game, watch it right after. Did you guys have a group viewing at the hotel? Actually, no. Like, okay, so we're on, obviously, you know, we're on the road uh, for the first six games of our season. Mm-hmm. So I just bring my Amazon Fire Stick with me and has HBO on that. So nice. I room. Yeah. So for the first episode, it was like Celeste Bure, Anna Sonogorchevich, and me. And then this last time, it was just Anna and I because we, we watched it pretty late night because my parents came in, I was hanging out with them, and then when they left, I was like, who wants to watch? And Anna was, like, pretty much the only person <laughs> so, <laughs> so not to, like, even, stay up and watch with me. Not even Midge Purse, who I talked to two years ago during the last season, who apparently got the whole Boston Breakers group into Game of Thrones. She wasn't wasn't up for staying up and watching it with you? You know, I will say that I think she was – like totally in but she had some plans that night because her family lives in and around the area so she's uh, okay so okay we'll give her a pass hold it against her yeah <laughs> not this time. but i but love that you brought your fire stick that's that's so smart so that wherever you go you have all your shows yes i'm a devoted follower of it of uh, <laughs> the the west uh i guess world building event it's not even a tv show at this point it's like it's so much bigger than that, I feel like. It's a, it's like a cultural phenomenon. The number of people who have asked me 
to explain things because they've just gotten engaged with the the show, you know, this year, maybe within the last year, it's, it's been amazing. And, you know, I have to admit, I can't, I came pretty late to it. It wasn't until about two and a half years ago that I started watching it. So this is for me only the second, only the second season where I'm watching it week by week. And it's, it's brutal because, you know, we're, we're, we're used to binge watching these days. So you can like, Ooh, let me watch all 10 episodes of this show. So the week by week, I'm like, no, I need more. I need more. Um, I know. And but, I think that's why everybody gets on Twitter and, and like, yeah, scan theories. Cause people are just so thirsty from, for game of Thrones. And so it's, it's like, it fills in your week thinking about what's going to happen next and like playing games of like who's who they're going to kill. And like, it's just, it's crazy. It's more than a TV show. Well, and so I have to ask you this. Were you like some people disappointed that more people didn't die? Because I thought that was such a a strange stance for people. It's like (laughs) more people should have died. I'm like five named characters, three of them who are pretty significant died we had more major character deaths than you know since the end of season six it's like like not everybody can die there's three more episodes and they're all movie length (laughs) like like there has to be some characters about that but but how did you feel at the end of that really intense 80 minute episode so we could talk about this for three hours but i'll try and keep my my thoughts (laughs) shorter um so I think I had two major disappointments with the episode, and it's not that they didn't kill more people, but it's that, first of all, the castle was completely overrun with White Walkers. And uh-huh. so in that sort of sense, probably more people should have died um, if this was like, if if this was, you know, real, because it, they were in dire situation so I mean if you looked at Sam I don't know how Sam survived because he was right. like, whimpering the entire time and like just saved by numerous people um, same with like Brienne same with uh, especially Jamie fighting with his left hand so I think I'm I'm happy that more people didn't die but I'm just a little bit confused how that didn't happen but, yeah, and so then, the sense of improbability Yes, exactly. And I think that this kind of leads me to my second disappointment is that I feel like I'm so beholden to the show because it's so well written and the world that they build is just like so intricate and surprising and like it, it fulfills a lot of like needs that people don't get from other TV shows. And so the world building was extremely complicated and took a long time to like build and like develop relationships with these characters and with these stories and these plot lines and the locations of the like where everybody was and so when people were moving around really fast in the last episode like going across the kingdom and back in like one episode and now they're not killing off major characters uh, in like really surprising ways, it, yeah. it's, I feel like it does a disservice to the fans and to the writers and to everyone else because, I mean, they killed off their biggest character, Ned Stark, in the first season, and it made it a better show. And so, 
I'm not necessarily all for killing off like characters because I love them, but I am for the show doing it like writing in the in a way that everybody is accustomed to and writing in the way that people fell in love with. And so those I, are my and I guess being being realistic because I I get why you know first season you kill off Ned, which is kind of surprising, but that action creates so much more plot after it. And we're in a different place, obviously, with just three episodes left to go, where now you know all these characters, now you know this world, things are going to be received differently. But I totally agree with, with your, when there's that many, um, could you that, that much, that, that much the of the the dead. Again? Yeah, like I was like, thinking, could, could, could you just be down the <laughs> yeah, but could you imagine if they just like let the White Walkers win, and then there's three more episodes of Cersei just trying to fight them off? Like that would be the biggest twist in the history of TV, and I feel like that's <laughs> something that Game of Thrones has always done. And now it's just kind of like, well, they were building up to this great battle. It's like life against death. We have to be able to defeat the Night King and the White Walkers. And now it's like kind of taking on Cersei, and it feels a little petty. <laughs> Like going after the Game of Thrones after defeating death, you know? Like, it's just a little petty now. Well, and it, it was that kind of satisfying. I'm still all in on this. Like, I'm still yeah. all in. Yeah, we're, we're happy to be unhappy. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I'm glad, of course, that, you know, when, when Daenerys says Dracarys and torches the Night King, it was kind of satisfying to see it's like that didn't affect him that 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 would be that would be too simple um and too clean of just like ah she you know she got his dragon she torched him she could have done that a long time ago no it took you know it 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 took the valerian steel um and and i do love how once you start thinking back to all the steps i do love the Arya stark arc of you know, everything she's learned, everything she's gained in the course of her development, um, you know, the, the training, um, where that sword came from, that was the sword that, uh, you know, that they tried to kill Bran with. Um, I love hearkening back to the, the, the line that the Red Witch said during the third season, you know, eyes you'll shut forever, yeah, you know, brown eyes, green eyes, blue yeah. eyes, and just, and what do we say to the God of Death? Not to, it was, it was like, it, it really, all the pieces came into play. So I'm that's glad it wasn't John Snow. Like, I'm like glad it wasn't John Snow. So good. Yeah. The, the writers are so good, right? And that's right. how good they are. And like, then you look at like, like Hodor's progression, and you look at a lot of other progressions in character development in the series. And so then I just, I feel like they did a disservice a little bit to some of the other characters when they do such a good job with Arya and Hodor and all these other characters. And then, yeah. you know, they they build this world up and then they kind of like take shortcuts in the last two seasons. And so it's just, it's just a disservice to the world building that they've beautifully done so far. And when you think but back right, to the, the Battle Arya of Bastards. Amazing. Yeah. When you think back to Battle of the Bastards and how you saw just both armies decimated, and of course, this is a different kind of battle because, as as we knew from Hard Home, we knew that the Night King just raises his hands at the right point. All those 
those people come back. Um, but I, I really enjoyed watching the behind the scenes things after the episodes. I always love hearing their insight. And they talked about you can't have too much battle because people will get bored. So you have to do kind of the up and down and take breaks and go down into the crypt and see the other storylines. And I, I thought it was handled really well. It, I was tense the whole 80 minutes. Like, I, I don't know if I can get through this. I need someone to hold my hand. This is getting kind of, <laughs> getting kind of scary, you know, and I love the moment in, in the crypt with Tyrion and, and Sansa, you know, talking about if they had still been married and just kind of facing what they, they probably felt was, was imminent death. Yeah, there were some super intense moments, emotional moments, and you're right, that was one of them. Um, I really, really loved that. And the other thing that I really loved was kind of Arya's arc as well in regards to her emotional, like, just situation. So she's kind of come back and kind of been stony, like, just, you know, not, not the Arya that we've known before. And then she kind of is like unruffled and completely unapologetic about who she is, which is awesome. But then at the same time, she's like taking on these white walkers and kicking ass and she's the best fighter there. But then she's just not able to take on 40 white walkers at a time. And she looks absolutely horrified and terrified for her life. And so it kind of takes her back to like who she was before. And I loved that. It was so cool to see Arya um, in a different way again. It almost called back to that chase in Bravos where she's trying to escape the waif, you know, when she's running through the tunnels inside Winterfell to get, to get away that, you know, you you know, she's got the tools to fight, but she's also at a disadvantage and, you know, you're not guaranteed that she's gonna, she's gonna survive. And yeah, so, so many great, detailed moments and and of course I love the ending that they gave Lady Mormont who they talked about when they originally wrote the character she was only going to be in that one scene with Jon Snow and and Sansa Stark a couple seasons ago but they just they loved the actress so much that they they made her role bigger you know so similar to Arya it's it's that same kind of satisfaction of hey sometimes you know the little person can kill the bigger thing. You know, it's not, it's not impossible. Uh, you know, especially after she's yelling, no, I'm not going to go sit down in, in the crypts with everybody else. I'm fighting too. Yeah. So, so, so many neat pieces, but now I wonder what happens next, you know? Uh, yeah. I think it's the, the, the petty war over the iron throne. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, don't tell Cersei it's petty, you know. <laughs> uh, Cersei's like one of the best characters in the whole show, but she's so petty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And one of her great qualities, actually, it, it, it's what makes her like so fascinating. And she's so good the at most she's petty so, character. She's so good at delivering petty lines in this perfect English accent while she's sipping wine. You know, her delivery is just <laughs> exquisite. Um, but what do you think about, you know, what's going to happen now with, you know, Daenerys finally knows the news about Jon. It hasn't been made public. Obviously they didn't need to deal with it this past episode. Uh, but now it's probably going to need to be dealt with. So 
you you do have a few care character core characters that know, but I don't know. What 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 do you think uh they're gonna do with that or what do you want them to do with that? Well, I think that I love I actually love Lacey. She's my favorite character in the whole show for a bunch of reasons, but um it feels like John I don't know, I don't want John to like win the I don't want John on the Iron Throne. That's just my feeling. He's a little bit whiny and a little bit like <laughs> He's just like a little too honorable. I feel like he can't necessarily like like actually rule. Actually, I think he can win battles, and I think he can hold people accountable, and I think he can do all these things. But it's a lot different to be a CEO. That's essentially what a queen is, you know. And so right, he feels he feels like the the people that like keep the peace. And so I don't know. I just I feel like uh, excuse me, not Cersei. <laughs> Cersei's the best option. So I don't know how to deal with it, but. Maybe they keep it secret, and then, you know, it comes out later and causes a whole thing, and then we get Game of Thrones round two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I like that because we still have a certain number of characters alive, that there's still uh, still some plot for them to to figure out, you know, that if, if Jon or, or Daenerys had died in the, in this last battle, well, then that whole storyline would have been a moot point. But but let's let's talk a little uh, goofy soccer Westerosi fantasy now. Um, I was I, I did this with Mid per, Mid ah, Midge Purse a couple seasons ago. I had her like name who she would make captain of the Westerosi national team and who she would pull onto the U.S. <laughs> national team. I love that her answer for which player from Westerosi would be on the national team, the U.S. national team. She goes, "No, we don't need anybody. We're good enough." <laughs> I, love, I love that but so so let, let's make it about the portland thorns so if you were going to draft any woman in westeros and, and and make her you know look at her and go oh my god she totally fits the portland thorns mentality who would that be i mean it's clearly aria right like 100 <laughs> percent like it's like no can, can i swear on your podcast or watch it <laughs> now, now, would you put her? Would you put her right midfield in front of you? You know, or 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 would you, would she be more center, or would you see her as attacking forward? Where would you put her? No, she's a she's a six, a hundred percent. You know, like <laughs> she's, she's a, a six, eight, or a ten. She needs to like own the midfield and own uh, basically anybody that comes into her space. And then I think that you know. What's interesting about her is that she's very individual, but she's also, like, she's there. She came to Winterfell for John. She came to Winterfell for her family. So she's yes. not just always thinking about herself. So she she has that quality that you're going to need in the midfield to be able to, like, absolutely own your space, plant your flag, be your individual, but also, like, know that you're running the, you're running the engine for the rest of the team. And you think of the nice so tag I, team I, that, so, that she and Sansa did with 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 Littlefinger, you know, the kind of double teamed little Littlefinger. So she definitely knows how to do yeah, teamwork. I like, I like how they exactly. I like how they played him at his own game. And then who who do you think from Westeros would make a really good NWSL head coach? Oh man, 
I always thought like I always thought Elena would be like the oh, Bruce the Bruce Arena. Great, yeah. okay. I would think she'd be a great like Bruce Arena head coach of just like she tells it as it is and she doesn't care what anybody thinks. So we could pick dead characters then? Yes, you can pick dead characters, yes. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great shout. Elena is clearly the smartest character and, like, most savvy at maneuvering in Westeros. It's just, you know, her, her fighters weren't the best. And right. she relied on she relied on Tyrion and Felicity to kind of, plan the battle, plan how they were going to take on Cersei, and she, that was her biggest, like, failure was relying on somebody else to plan for her. Like, if she was doing the planning, I'm sure that she would still be alive and, like, taking revenge. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, she just had, I I think, just a weak son. You know, when you think about that, you know, Mace Tyrell did nothing. She she and Marjorie had to do all the work. You know? Yeah, it was a big loss I think yeah. for the show to lose it purposely. You're right. She would be great head coach. She'd be super, I mean, she's super savvy and smart, but she well, also, like, knows everybody's strengths and weaknesses. And that's really, really impressive. But now that I'm thinking you about it. You can also say that about uh, Tyrell. Or not Tyrell. Um, Tywin Lannister. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think maybe... One of those two should be NWSL commissioner. Now that I'm thinking about it, like like oh, ruthless, yeah. ruthless. Go out, get major TV deals, sponsorships, you know, branding. Just yeah, I could totally see Ty- Tywin Lannister killing it as as NWSL commissioner. I, th- I think we should make yeah. that happen. <laughs> yeah, let's give him a call. No problem. Yeah, yeah. HBO can help us with that. Well, so let's let's talk. Let's talk reality. Let let's just talk a little bit about Portland Thorns. It's it's three games in, and you guys have the the joy of being on the road for your first six games while the the renovations to Providence Park are being finished. So so what's that like to have six in a row on the road. I mean, you're only halfway through, but it's, that's got to feel different from the traditional opening at home in April. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely wild. Um, you know, this will be our first week at home in four weeks. Like, wow. We only have like two or three days at home. Um, and then we'll travel again. So it's just, I guess, three weeks, but it's it's a lot. Um, and anytime you go on the road in NWL, it's because you're battling, you know, crappy food, and sometimes the the flights are early because we have to go all the way across the country, and the hotels are, the beds are hard. So you're you're battling all these things that you don't have to when you're at home. You're completely comfortable. You you get to see your friends. You eat the food that you want. You're practicing, uh, you know, whenever you need to, and you don't have to deal with time change. So there's a lot of advantages to playing at home. And so anytime that you go on the road, getting points is really important. Uh, right. I think for us, we're we're a bit disappointed because we felt that 
I mean, we're not the type of defense that gets four goals scored on them, uh, or or even the last game, two goals scored on us like that. And so it, it's been disappointing not getting those results because anytime you score four goals, anytime you score two goals in this league, that should be enough to win. And so it's frustrating for us to to drop point drop four points like that. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, and to have that extended time on the road, so you're not even at your home base and in your your normal rhythm of things. So, what do you do on the road to try to keep yourself in the right groove for games? Well, obviously, you bring your Amazon Fire Stick and watch Game of Thrones. Uh, That's very important. But then you just kind of, like, make time within your schedule for yourself and for your own needs. And so that means, like, going to Whole Foods and, you know, just, like, loading up on snacks that you love, then that's what you do. Or if that means going out to a coffee shop and taking a break, then that's what you do. So you just kind of find some relaxation, some rest, and some comfort in those ways on the road. And and you hope that you don't get attacked by any White Walkers. Yeah, exactly. We actually <laughs> have, we have Dagny back this year, bring your daughter. Uh-huh. Um, and so she, she actually brings her baby, Brynjar, and her soon-to-be husband on the road, uh-huh. and uh, he's the cutest little thing in the world, and so we all take turns holding him, but we were dying laughing the other day because we were, he had these big, bright blue eyes and, like, really, really pale skin, you know, ice uh-huh. of course. Right. And uh, we were dying laughing because we were like, Aria, you missed a White Walker. Uh, he, he's the last White Walker, the baby White Walker, and he's just so cute. So we're like passing around the White Walker in the airport, just trying to help out Dagny. It, it, it's really fun to have him on the road with us too. I think you just need to tell her that he's the White King, the Night King reborn. Clearly, <laughs> I think he probably is. Um, well, well, Megan, thank you so much for taking the time to. To talk my favorite show, I I knew I knew that you would be up for the task, and good luck with the rest of the road trip. Yeah, thank you. Really, really appreciate it. Always love chatting you up, and uh, you know maybe we should do this again after the finale because it's clearly going to be a lot. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Joe Ferreira from United Women's Soccer, or UWS, also representing the New England Mutiny. Joe, thanks for joining me today. I'm excited to talk with the founder of a women's soccer club that is 20 years old. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure, uh, Jen. Yeah, we're we're very excited. This season uh, will be our 20th anniversary season, and it's uh, been a long, long run, a passionate run, but we are excited. And you've played in in different leagues, so let's dial the clock back a little bit and and go back to the first season of the New England Mutiny in 1999, which I'm assuming would have started right before the Women's World Cup, or was the season after the Women's World Cup? It was uh, right before uh, we were granted a franchise in the uh, the W League of of the USL. 
Uh, at the time, we were called the Springfield Sirens uh, for for two seasons. Uh, we, we played uh, in the W League uh, way back in '99. And I I was thrilled to read about the team that you had some some pretty amazing moments in those first few years, especially for you know a semi pro club hosting China as they prepared for the 2004 Olympic tournament. Yeah, that was uh, uh, our, our crowning moment, actually, and uh, our, our most exciting time as a franchise. Uh, it, the, the match itself uh, kind of fell into our lap. Uh, you know, originally, uh, Mexico was uh, slated to play uh, uh, both China and the United States uh, right before the uh, the Olympics here in, uh, uh, in, in, in Connecticut, and uh, Canada uh, scored a major upset in knocking out Mexico, and uh, Mexico just went home, so the Federation had called saying that China wanted a, another game, and they asked if we were inter- interested, and we said absolutely, and uh, we were able to host them at our facility, and it was a, it was a fantastic moment. And this is in Springfield, Massachusetts? Correct. We actually played in Aguam, Massachusetts, which is the bordering town. That was our home home venue at the time. Uh, you know, I got the call about five days prior. We were actually getting prepared to uh, play our national championship in, in Sacramento, California uh, that weekend. Uh, but just the match was scheduled for the Thursday prior, and you know, we knew it would put us at a bit of a disadvantage playing so close to our national championship final. But, uh, you know, the experience that uh, we were able to give the women to, to play against the national team uh, was uh, was fantastic. And, uh, you know, the decision was made uh, early on to, to play every player on the roster, regardless of uh, uh, what the score was. And, uh, you know, quite honestly, we went into that game thinking that if we lost 4 or 5 nil, it would be a success. Uh, but we were actually winning three to one in the sixtieth uh, minute, um, so it was a pretty pretty dynamic weekend for us. And a pretty decent crowd. Yeah, uh, with uh, just a few days to prepare, over three thousand uh, fans came out to the, to the stadium uh, to watch the match. It was uh, very exciting. So following that, you're you're in the W League, which I know a lot of current women's soccer fans are going to think Australia. But no, this was the W League <laughs> that was yeah. partnered with what used to be called the A League. Now it's the USL. Uh, it was you know one of two women's semi-pro or pro-am leagues uh, that all of those existed before WSA, before WPS, and really bridged the gap between you know the, the empty years between those those leagues so you know i'm sure you had some big name players play with you yeah especially when the first uh, uh pro league wsa uh folded uh, uh that season uh we picked up um, many players who had played uh um, here locally with the with the boston breakers uh you know aaron aaron o'grady alexa borschuk um mary francis monroe uh, Jennifer Molina, the Mexican national team goalkeeper. Um, so we were able to, uh, you know, get get some very good players that year. Uh, never, never a good thing in my estimation when when a pro league uh, folds, uh, which we had to endure 
uh, twice in, in my tenure uh, with this franchise, uh, but we were able to get some uh, pretty pretty outstanding players that year. And then talk about what happened after WPS folded. Uh, so um, when the, the league folded, we actually um, received that announcement when we were, uh, you know, in our uh, annual general meeting. At the, at the time, I was in the WPSL, um, and uh, that announcement came when we were in, in our, our general meeting. Paul Riley was actually uh, there at the time and uh, it, you know it was a, a quick decision that uh, we decided as a group um, you know my, men, my mentor and uh, uh, the founder of the WGSL uh, Jerry Zanelli um, you know asked a group of us uh, who would be interested in, in potentially keeping the brand alive uh, because there were some of those WPS teams that still wanted to operate uh, you know, the, at the time was the the Breakers and the West New York Flash, Chicago Red Stars, uh, and uh, you know, a group of us had uh, decided to form a league to to keep the brand alive. We, we branded it WPSL Elite, and uh, a few made up a few teams from the WPSL and the WPS teams, and uh, we had a in 2012 uh, a league that was uh, you know professional and amateur combined. And so you got to play some of the teams that had been in WPS, Chicago Red Stars, Western New York Flash, who had been the champion in 2011, Boston Breakers. So, you know, again, getting to play against really some of the best players in the country. Yeah, that was uh, another exciting time for for us as a franchise. Uh, There were four teams from uh, the WPSL that decided to make that leap uh, uh, to play against those pro teams that season, uh, I was very proud of the fact that we were the the only team that was, was able to garner points from the professional teams. Uh, we actually ended up tying the, the flash uh, on our home pitch, and, uh, and incredibly, we defeated the Boston Breakers with uh, uh, two goals uh, late in the 90th and 93rd minute to, to win two to one. Uh, so that was an exciting time for us. So how how do you keep a franchise like this going over all these years when, you know, we all know the ebb and flow of attention to to women's soccer and sometimes even, you know, women's sports. And, you know, you're not in a position, obviously, uh, to pay full salaries to the players. It, it is a, a semi-pro situation. But but what what keeps it all going? Yeah, <laughs> the passion, basic passion is, is definitely the, the answer there. Um, I, I, I shudder to, to think of how much uh, money was lost uh, over, over the 20 years uh, doing this, this project. But, uh, you know, the reward of uh, uh, you know, giving this opportunity to, to female players and, uh, and, and themselves being role models for the younger players just uh, uh, keeps us going. And uh, you know, 20 years is is, is a, an awful long time, uh, but it's uh, it, it's had some very rewarding moments for sure. And then, just a few years ago, you helped launch United Women's Soccer or UWS, and th- that league kicks off its fourth season this month. And t- talk about how that came about and and why you saw a need for UWS. Yeah, uh, 
you know, like, like I had mentioned, I was previously in, in the WPSL, and, uh, uh, you know, Jerry Zanelli and, and myself helped, helped grow the league. And, um, you know, we maintained a, a great relationship, but just uh, a, a different vision uh, that, that we had. Uh, you know, Jerry um, was, um, uh, you know, bringing in franchises throughout the entire country and uh, uh, has since become the, the largest uh, amateur women's league in the world. And, and uh, you know, that's fantastic, and uh, it was a pleasure um, working with him over the years. Uh, but we just felt here in, in New England, uh, you know, we were operating more with professional standards and, uh, you know, big minimum standards uh, that we were looking to have enforced and just having uh, other teams in the league operate with the same professionalism. Um, so at that point, uh, you know, a few of us who wanted to operate at, at that higher level of professionalism, uh, we got together and uh, started this league. And uh, although the league is uh, is young, uh, you know, some of the teams have been in it for uh, a long, long time. And uh, you know, it's been a, a great a great run uh, thus far, and it's been exciting to to watch the league develop. And I think. A lot of fans, you know, and people that follow women's soccer don't necessarily understand what would be the difference between UWS and something like NWSL. I, I would think the easiest analogy would be, you know, USL to MLS. So it's 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 a lower tier, of course, and in this this case, it's it's semi pro. But that means you're mostly relying on college age players yes and occasionally um overage players correct uh, you know usually we have a, a 50 50 mix uh, of college players and, and post-collegiate players and internationals um it, your parallel is, is accurate it, it's um you know akin to the mls uh, to, to usl model um you know, we do have the ability to, to utilize the college players, um, which which I think uh, uh, gives us a, a different uh, player pool, uh, but still one of quality. Um, and, you know, that mix of, uh, of young and old, uh, so to speak, uh, you know, works for a tremendous product. And so going into a year like 2019, where you've got Women's World Cup and more attention being paid to the sport and NWSL in its seventh year, how does that help help what you're doing with the mutiny and, and with UWS? It it does help uh, in the short term, anyways. It will bring bring awareness. Um, you know, there'll, there'll be a, a greater interest uh, for sure. Um, you know, I know you know several of our players are. Maybe taking a couple of weeks off to, to go to France and, and, and watch it in person. Um, so it definitely brings awareness and, and excitement to, to the game uh, for sure. Uh, but you know, for us, it's still uh, staying the course um, and, and just uh, you know keeping keeping with what we're we're accomplishing uh, uh, moving forward. Uh, but you know, situations like this do provide a a short-term bump in in excitement and and fanfare for sure. And then what opportunities are there to work with NWSL or NWSL clubs? I mean, when, when Boston breakers were still around, you know, were there scrimmaging options or 
has there been any any discussion on on those kind of connections in the future? Yeah, definitely uh, an open relationship uh, for for teams that are uh, uh, geographically close to NWSL teams. Uh, the ability to uh, you know, have exhi- exhibition games, uh, even some teams to to be reserve teams for the WSL teams, where where players can come down and play with uh, uh, quote unquote minor league club, uh, whether it's uh, a rehab stint or, or what have you, and also the opportunity to to look at the players for uh, the NWSL team, uh, you know, especially in in years like like this, where uh, some players would be lost to the World Cup, and uh, you know, bigger bigger player pool is, is necessary. And so, any big plans for for this season? Uh, you know, maybe doing something around the Women's World Cup, or just maybe maybe some signings you're really excited about. Uh, for for us locally, uh, you know, we're uh, excited to be in a, a new venue. Uh, a soccer, one of the oldest soccer-specific stadiums in, in New England. Uh, so we've, we've received uh, quite a positive buzz uh, here, and I'm sure once the, the World Cup, uh, you know, starts starts happening, uh, you know, that, that excitement will be uh, generated throughout the whole summer. Um, you know, and as I said, uh, you know, for us, it's just uh, maintaining uh, maintaining the model, maintaining staying the course, and uh, operating professionally, and uh, you know, hopefully capitalize on the excitement that uh, uh, the World Cup will bring. And what are some of the biggest challenge of operating professionally? Because it's it's an easy phrase to throw around, um, but I would have to think that being around for twenty years that you figured out a lot of how to keep things going <laughs> in, in yeah. semi-pro soccer. Yeah, for sure. I've, uh, I've made a lot of mistakes. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong. And, uh, um, you know, uh, when you, when you talk professionalism, uh, I mean, you talk uh, financial resources, uh, you know, that's, that's the, the number one thing. And, uh, you know, trying to, um, Get the finances uh, through sponsorships or, or ticket sales, so you can provide the, you know, the necessary elements you need to provide to to maintain a, a professional atmosphere for for you know not only the the players but the the fans and, and the media, and uh, you know it all comes down to uh, uh, dollars uh, really, um, and you know the the women seem to uh, you know appreciate the the efforts uh, that that you place forward and you keep uh, keep staying the course with that. And would you say it's maybe a little easier to keep things going in the northeast where you have the population density that going to away games doesn't necessarily mean a flight? Oh yeah. Um I mean not only in, in just uh, at at our our level uh but you know leagues leagues around the country uh, you know, for sure. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I sympathize tremendously with with our teams in, in the West, um, which are some of our greatest teams for sure, and and, and great organizations. Uh, but the amount of travel that that they do, um, if I had to do that for 20 years, I, I I honestly couldn't sit here and tell you that we we'd have the franchise for 20 years. Uh, we definitely have a a very good dynamic in the Northeast with the, like you said, the, the population densities and 
and the player pools and, and the fan base here that, uh, um, you know, these, these leagues have always been able to grow uh, consistently in, in this region, uh, first and foremost. And it's, you know, it's always a, a, a struggle you know, in, in other parts of the country trying to put it together, but, uh, you know, we've managed and uh, uh, for sure, uh, um, I'm not uh, uh, disregarding the, the fact that uh, from a travel perspective, uh, we got it a little bit more easier than the other regions. And what advice would you give to, say, you get a call out of the blue from just a really eager fan that supposedly has deep pockets and says, I want to start a UWS team, Joe. What do I do? What do I do? How do I start? Well, it's, uh, it's you know, trying to be a, a – make sure that the goal is to be a kind of a soup-to-nuts organization and not just, uh, uh, you know, be, being concerned about the – the team on the field. Uh, it's, it's all about the professionalism. It's all about the standards. It's all about uh, being able to uh, create a fan base, uh, you know, being a, a, a part of the community, uh, you know, part of the media, um, you know, all, all, all facets of, of running a, a quote-unquote soccer franchise. And, and uh, you know, we, we could all pretty much... Uh, put together an extreme competitive team on the field if that was our singular focus. Uh, but that's never been a uh, singular focus for myself. Uh, even though it's very important to have a winning team and a winning product because it makes it more attractive to fans. Uh, but the, the whole dynamic of uh, uh, trying to get fans and, and trying to be a, a part of the community is, is very important. Well, I'm just, I'm so glad to be able to talk to somebody who's been able to keep a franchise alive that long. Um, I think anybody listening knows how difficult that's got to be, especially when you're talking about different leagues. But I I wish the Mutiny a lot of luck this season and and in future seasons. No, thank you so much for for the kind words. And uh, we're we're excited. And uh, I really appreciate that. And thank you so much. Right, time to wrap it up with the back four. That U.S. Women's World Cup roster is dropping May 2nd and may have already dropped by the time you hear this. 23 players, the final 23 for France. But note that head coach Jill Ellis can still pull an injured player off that 23 and replace with an alternate up until a day before the team's first game in France. The 23 players on the roster will be the only ones used for the three friendlies in May. And fun stat, this is the first time in U.S. Women's World Cup history that all 23 players on the U.S. roster are playing in an American Pro Women's Soccer League. All right, speaking of those friendlies, first up is Sunday, May 12th versus South Africa. Then Thursday, May 16th, they take on New Zealand. And finally, over Memorial Day weekend, they play Mexico before they depart for France. All three friendlies will be broadcast live on TV. First one, Fox Sports, and the rest on one of the ESPN channels. So check ussoccer.com for more details. And if you haven't checked out my t-shirts at keepernotes.spreadshirt.com, please do. 
There's at least one design for every NWSL club. There's also a couple of USA designs, and I will be adding more soon. For each shirt sold from this site, I am sending $2 to the NWSL Players Association. That is the official Players Association recognized by NWSL that represents the interest of every player who is not a current member of the U.S. Women's National Team. And last but not least, if you're looking for NWSL gear or U.S. Women's National Team gear, especially customization options, reach out to my buddy Sean, who now runs the Soccer for All store that I used to run. You can just email him at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at SoccerForAll.com, and that is the number four. So reach out to him. He's already been looking into goalkeeper jerseys, and I know they're getting the new authentic lettering for NWSL and U.S. Women's National Team. So he will try to help you out the best he can. All right, that's it for this episode. Next episode, of course, will be all about the U.S. Women's National Team roster, so look for that next week. And in the meantime, be sure you're following me uh, on Twitter via MixZone or Keeper Notes. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to everyone for sharing this with friends or posting a review. And many thanks to Sean for putting this all together. But now she's anybody's girl.